Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, April 13th. I'm your host, Scott Bland, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We talked special elections last week, and guess what? We're going to talk special elections again this week. There was one in Kansas on Tuesday that broke so late we didn't discuss it in the last episode. And one number there has sparked a particularly interesting debate among Democrats, among Republicans, between both parties. It was the margin, the Republican margin of victory in a district that Donald Trump won by 27 points in November. So we'll talk about what that means and doesn't mean coming right up. Also this week, Trump is reversing himself on a growing number of campaign pledges, especially in the past few days. And the 100-day marker of his administration is coming up. What does that mean, and what does Trump have to show for it? All that and more on this week's episode. A couple quick housekeeping notes before we get started here. Remember, please email us your questions at nerdcast at politico.com. And please subscribe, rate us, and if you have time, write a written review of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Okay, let's get started. With me this week, we have Chief Investigative Reporter Ken Vogel. That's me. Hi. Senior Reporter Nancy Cook. Thanks for having me. And with us to talk about these special elections, national political reporter Gabe DiBenedetti. What's going on? Oh, that's not all that you're good for, though, Gabe. (laughs) I'm I'm here. I'm especially for for special elections. The rebuilding of the Democratic Party and the fissures in the Republican Party. Both of which were on display this week and will be on display next week. Let's jump into our first data point. As we mentioned before, that's 6.8. That was the margin in a Tuesday special election for a Kansas House district where President Donald Trump won by 27 points in November. Now, Republican Ron Estes still won, but he underperformed what the GOP usually does in this district. So, Gabe, what should we take from this? Should Republicans be worried about their political position or are special elections kind of overblown media events? Uh, Well, they're definitely overblown media events, but that doesn't mean that Republicans shouldn't be a little bit worried here. Uh, I think best of both worlds. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I'm here to hedge. Uh, No, but but I do think that what uh, what a lot of people are taking from this is that Republicans do have reason to to worry or at least to be concerned about what the next few months are going to look like. It's you know it's way too early to assume that the midterms are going to look like this, but they just had a seat swing against them by 20 points. I counted the other night. There are at least 75 Republican House members who won their seats by fewer than 20 points just in November. November. So no one's assuming that all the seats are going to go by 20 points, but clearly there is a national movement here. And what's important to know is that, you know, it wasn't as if Democrats invested all that much in this seat. Uh, it was Republicans, in fact, who sort of rushed into the last second to save Estes. Uh, Trump did a robocall. Pence got involved. Ted Cruz went out to Kansas. Uh, you know, from a national perspective, it's pretty shocking that we're even paying attention to a suburban Wichita house race in the first place. It shouldn't the have Koch been. Koch Brothers District. That's exactly right. Yeah. And they actually did not get involved. I mean, they, they typically are leery about weighing in, except, uh, you know, among their favorites. But, uh, uh, you know, Estes' wife apparently was an Americans for Prosperity Kansas field director, Americans for Prosperity, the main Koch brothers group. Although my sources tell me that the Kochs actually favored Alan Cobb, who lost at the, I guess it was like a party convention at which they picked the nominee. Uh, so 
who knows if that's if that's uh, to blame? But see, clearly, they uh, you know the, the the national groups did weigh in in a big way, and their their failure to uh, you know create a landslide as as just a show of strength in the in the new Trump era is something that's worth reading into. I think. And we should back up a bit at this point to to talk about why we didn't talk about this district last week when we talked about how special elections pretty much uh, that you know that night as we were putting the podcast together it. it uh, became known that the NRCC, the House Republican Campaign Committee, was starting to run late TV ads attacking the Democrat in this district that Trump won by 27 points. It was uh, the district vacated by Mike Pompeo, who Trump nominated to be CIA director, and it was not expected by almost anyone in either party to be competitive. Uh, but it ended up turning into this big thing over the last few days. And like Gabe said, you had all sorts of national Republican involvement uh, jumping in as they're, you know, n- not just uh, trying to make sure that they uh, won the seat, but trying to avoid some sort of uh, drop off that would kind of add to this this narrative that we've seen, right, Nancy, in the White House, in Congress of the Republican Party struggling a little bit, uh, despite having gained control of all these levers of power in Washington. I mean, I think partly it's a Republican story. But, you know, Gabe, you've written a ton about about this lately. It's also just a, a show, I think, of how jazzed up Democrats are. I mean, I feel like Democrats weren't that jazzed up necessarily about the election of Hillary Clinton. And, and that led to some of her problems. But Democrats are very, very fired up by Trump. And they're in the same position that Republicans have been in for the last several years of being an opposition party and being very motivated by just opposing whatever the Republicans are going to do. And I think that that will be a really interesting thing to watch in 2018. Like, you know, how are the Republican fissures happening, but also how are the Democrats sort of mobilizing and harnessing this new energy in the party um, in these state races? Yeah. And I think one thing that's important to note here uh, is that this is not necessarily a great national test case for a number of local reasons, one of which is that the governor of Kansas is a Republican, Sam Brownback, who's extremely unpopular, even among a lot of Republicans there. So there were a lot of things going against Estes going into this. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, what we're seeing on the Democratic side now is a surprising amount of recriminations considering how close this thing was. A lot of people are saying, how come national Democrats didn't get involved? But to your point, Scott, most national Democrats basically didn't know that this race was even happening until last week. It was not supposed to be close. And until there were rumors of a close poll or two floating around, you know, national Democrats wanted nothing to do with it. But it's it's quite a contrast from the Georgia special where Democrats were so fired up. And you looked at the the Democrats uh, final FEC reports before the uh, before the election. I saw that you were tweeting about this and it's like every single Hollywood star had right. given to this like John Ossoff guy no one ever heard of and it just goes to show that yeah with a little bit more sort of signaling by the powers that be in the Democratic Party you know you can really harness this energy and I think it is I'm not saying it's like right to uh, do the, the backseat driving and the you know the, right. the sort of the Monday morning quarterback is the, the term I'm looking for but like let's face it this is politics that happens and it is possible that with a little more uh, sort of juice from national Democrats that this could have been even closer. Yeah and I think what you're going to see now from the national Democrats is a lot more of a discussion at least amongst themselves about how they're going to get involved in the upcoming special elections because really these elections only matter on the margins but in terms of firing up their supporters it's clearly something that they see as important and there are a bunch coming up. There's this one in Georgia in the 6th District uh, where they have this 
30-year-old guy, John Ossoff, who if he hits 50 percent next Tuesday, uh, that's that. He's won. And he's got a very fractured Republican feel, we right. should say. So that also adjures to his benefit. Exactly. And then there are some other ones. There's an at-large seat in Montana rep- to replace uh, Ryan Zinke, who's now the Interior Secretary. Montana's a pretty Republican state. Trump won it by 20-something points. But they elect Democrats uh, uh, statewide. You know, the governor, Steve Bullock, uh, Senator John Tester. So it's not crazy to think that that candidate, Rob Quist, could compete. And then there are other ones. There's one in South Carolina. And, and a lot of these are long shots. But, you know, Democrats are going to face real pressure to get involved in real ways to send a signal to their backers. Right. It's, it's symbolic. And it's also, you know, it also matters. But it's like a test a test of the of, exactly. the, of the mobilized base and, and uh, how much the sort of anti-Trump sentiment, how far that can take you. You know, Democrats are like clinging to all kinds of things where they're like, oh, we won because the court, you know, put a stay on the travel ban or we won because Republicans couldn't get enough votes to pass the health care reform, the Obamacare repeal. And it's like you're not really winning. It's like Republicans (laughs) are are tripping themselves up here. But these special elections are a chance for actual wins. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. And, you know, I think – Nancy, the the other aspect of this is how – I mean th- this is all happening in the same atmosphere as – we've talked about this a few times, but it's all happening in the same atmosphere as what's going on in Congress right now. And you've got – well, Democrats are really fired up to oppose Trump. There there have been some stories recently and you know it's a little hard to dig into data much on this, but about – Republicans in in Congress and the the White House have have not given their grassroots supporters much you know legislative accomplishment so far to to fire them up with right Neil Gorsuch was confirmed to the Supreme Court and that was an enormous victory but the you know and we're going to talk later in the podcast about the first one hundred days it's been kind of uh, slim pickings to. To, to fire up Republican voters at this point, right? Yeah, and Congress is on recess right now for two weeks. And I feel like, you know, back at home, uh, you know, Republican lawmakers are facing questions about why haven't they repealed Obamacare or they're avoiding town halls. And I definitely feel like this is one of the instances where Republicans want to be able to say back home, you know, this is what we've done. You know, these are our accomplishments so far now that we finally control Congress and the White House. Because for years, Republicans just hinged their whole party platform on opposing Obama and him. Here's the chance to govern. And you need to be able to show voters back home that you can do that. And so far, apart from Gorsuch, there's really nothing to brag about. You know, back to the political side, because, you know, let's face it, this is politico, not policy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I Gabe, would be running the policy over. Right. You can run the politico vertical. <laughs> uh, Gabe, Gabe had a story uh, earlier this week about 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 the, the sort of remaking the Republican Party around Trump installing sort of Trump loyalists at some of these state parties. So this these special elections are also a test of that. You know, Trump has not shown Trump's election was like so unconventional in his ability to, uh, you know, tap into social media and bring out these huge crowds to rallies and really do without some of the traditional blocking and tackling tools of of politics on the ground. And so now you have to shift. You can't run those kinds of campaigns and, you know, 435 uh, districts. you got to have local campaigns. And so the Trump people are taking over. The Trump team is trying to build this outside group, uh, two, two different outside groups, and they're having some problems. They're having problems raising money. They're having problems sort of, uh, you know, deploying. And these special elections, I think, will be a test of that, particularly 
since now you have Trump and Trump's team starting to make noises about getting involved in Republican primaries. Well, yes. if you can't even get involved in a general election and do it effectively, good luck swaying a Republican primary. Yeah, exactly. And these special elections, as much as they're giving Democrats reason to cheer and Republicans are saying, you know, not so fast. If you look at the Republican primaries in a lot of these races, they're pretty messy. It's not as if there's a unified Republican Party, even though they control all of D.C. You know, Georgia has 18 uh, Republicans running for that seat. Uh, in Kansas, there's already rumblings two days after that election that uh, Estes, the new congressman, could get a primary challenge immediately. So, you know, the Trump team is going to have to deal with this in some way or another. The Montana, you know, Republican Party is already asking Trump and Pence, as I reported earlier this week, to get involved in that race because they're nervous. So this is a test for them every single day. Yeah, and it's not and it's not just tactical, though it is. And that's what I emphasize. And that's right. what you emphasize in your story about them taking control of the GOP machine. It's also Phil's philosophical. What is a Trump Republican? And there's no clear answer to that. So there's going to be a fight in each each you know instance where you have the possibility of a, of a contested primary of people representing sort of different strains of Republicanism. Uh, you don't really have any clear sort of top-down blueprint for what a, a Trump Republican should look like. Nancy? Well, and there's not even, I mean, this week has just been the perfect example of sort of the lack of clarity on the Trump philosophy. I mean, this week he flip-flopped or pivoted on so many different policy issues from, you know, suddenly he likes the head of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, who President Obama appointed. Suddenly he thinks the XM Bank is okay. You know, really far-right Republicans hate that. Um, you know, he doesn't really have a clear Syria policy. And there's just example after example like that. And I feel like it's really hard then to go back and say, oh, well, we're controlling Washington and here's the things we're doing when Trump himself week to week totally changes kind of what he's for and against. One more thing I want to point out about uh, Trump in these special elections. Uh, there's another special election happening in Montana in May, and it was just announced yesterday that Donald Trump Jr. is heading there to stump with the Republican candidate, Greg Gianforte, for a few days. Uh, Gianforte, who's specifically explicitly tied himself to Trump, he says he wants the special election to be a referendum on the Trump administration, which is kind of a reminder that these are all happening in conservative-leaning, Republican-friendly territory. You, you mean prospective uh, New York gubernatorial candidate, Donald Trump Jr.? No, he put the kibosh on that. That's, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, well, at least for 2018. <laughs> we'll see in the future. Uh, but Gabe, th- this, this gets to a point that you've written about in the past. All these special elections are happening in R plus 8, R plus 12, R plus 15 territory in terms yep. of the Republican lean. Some Democrats are a little worried that, that we, we talked about the party wanting to see wins. There's, there's some concern that about expectations being pumped up to. This is like the classic Washington thing to worry about, right? It's like expectations as opposed to the actual wins and losses. But this is something people are concerned about, Yes, right? absolutely. And I think you, exactly what happened right after the Kansas race just a few days ago is exactly what people were concerned about, which is that if there are these expectations that are raised so high – even if Democrats lose by a little amount, there's going to be a circular firing squad, basically. They're all going to get mad at each other for not investing enough. They're going to say, you know, there's some people saying the party establishment didn't invest enough in Kansas because this guy supported Bernie in the primary as over Hillary. There's no evidence to that necessarily. But, you know, Democrats are really good at being mad at each other these days. Uh, and that's basically what we're seeing. You know, in Georgia, there's so much money uh 
time, energy being spent on this race for this for this guy, John Ossoff. He's running in a district that Tom Price, who's now the health secretary, used to win by 20 or 30 points regularly. So for Democrats to even be close is, is pretty remarkable in the first place. If he loses by two points, there's real concern in the party. As, as, as you say, I wrote a few weeks ago that, you know, the amount of anti-Trump energy and money and verve that Democrats really have right now could just fall off a cliff. And no one really has an answer for that. Yeah, Democrats haven't shown a, a great ability to set expectations as we see to the, the Hillary election, but they have shown a great ability to point fingers after the election if it doesn't go their way uh, to sort of uh, figure out who's to blame. All right. Once again, so we just had a special election last week. We've got another one in Georgia, the special primary coming up on April 18th. That's this upcoming Tuesday. South Carolina 5th District, Montana at-large district coming in May, a really packed political calendar coming up over the next few months. Let's jump into our second data point, which Nancy hinted at a few minutes ago. The number we picked out is four, but as we're about to talk about, we really could pick any number of uh, figures here. Wednesday was a pretty remarkable day in the Trump administration. In the space of a few hours, four different campaign pledges or position went by the wayside, calling China a currency manipulator and NATO obsolete were flipped on their head and opposing the Export-Import Bank and Fed Chair Janet Yellen, also Trump flipped on, three of them in a single Wall Street Journal interview. And this comes after, uh, of course, another big flip, an overseas military action in Syria last week that Trump had specifically argued against in the past and after a campaign in which he said America was not going to be the world's policeman anymore. Nancy, all these turnarounds are interesting, but the Syria strike was particularly remarkable, especially just in the speed of the evolution of the administration's thinking about Syria. So what, what have you learned about Trump in the last week from all this? Well, I think we've just learned uh, sort of what we already knew, but it really brought home this week that he is very ideologically flexible. Um, you know, we were talking, uh, you know, just a few minutes ago, but Trump really made it clear during the campaign that he wasn't going to get involved in other foreign affairs. You know, he didn't want to be the world's policeman. And then suddenly, you know, within a span of two days, he basically decides to strike Syria after seeing all these images on TV of children who had been gassed and who had died under the Assad, Assad regime that really struck home with him and very quickly decided to do these strikes and seemed quite pleased with himself on that. It doesn't necessarily mean that he has a coherent policy on Syria moving forward, but just the fact that he went from, you know, in the campaign saying he didn't want to get involved in these kind of international incidents to suddenly realizing that you know, maybe we should stand up to Syria. I mean, he had said that he didn't want to be the world's policeman literally earlier in the week before he uh, launched the strike. Right. And now he seems to sort of take this different viewpoint. Um, and that was just one example that happened. You know, as you mentioned, there were all of these other things about, you know, Janet Yellen. Suddenly he likes her. Um, you know, he was saying he suddenly thinks the XM Bank is OK. Uh, you know, China was a currency manipulator during the campaign. Now it's not. And so I feel like we've just learned that he is flexible ideologically. But also, I feel like what is happening against the backdrop of this is that there's this big, you know, brewing potential shakeup in the West Wing, and more moderate uh, forces are sort of weighing in over Steve Bannon. And so I, you know, feel like it's fair to say that that might be having some influence on this. Yeah, and it's, you know, 
a couple things going on here. First of all, I think uh, Nancy made a really good point there that this there is a way. It doesn't necessarily reflect these evolutions. Don't necessarily reflect the you know factions and the the state of play and the internal uh, power struggle going on in the White House. But it's certainly possible to read into these evolutions, flip flops, whatever you want to call them, uh, to to sort of discern who's up and who's down in that power struggle. Steve Bannon, as he mentioned, the chief White House strategist is, uh, you know, the a nationalist. He's sort of seen as the keeper of the, the populist nationalist Trump campaign theme that Trump really rode very effectively down the stretch. He has found himself at odds with Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, uh, and uh, a, a series of advisors sort of around who are close to Kushner, who are regarded as the New York moderates, talking about Dina Powell, uh, as well as Gary Cohn, economic advisor. And so some of these some of these moves seem to reflect uh, their, their ascendancy. What they also seem to reflect, it's important to point out that like all those stances that we outlined that he has kind of reversed or evolved on through these recent actions were stances that were in some ways like anathema to the Republican pieces of the Republican orthodoxy when Trump said he wasn't going to get involved in some of these foreign entanglements. Some of the neocons were like, whoa, 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 what happened to us? You know, we've been like an important part of the Republican constituency um, a coalition for, for all these years, and they felt really threatened by it. Now they're feeling a bit more relieved. You had like the Chamber of Commerce types, uh, the, you know, the business conservatives who were uh, favor, you know, favor the export import bank and kind of like Janet Yellen and, and uh, were a little nervous about the prospects of a trade war with China. And now he's sort of evolved over to their camp on some of these things. So I think it's important to look at the, you know, the possible evolution of Trump away from being a uniquely sort of populist figure to becoming a more traditional Republican. Well, he may be a uniquely populist messenger, uh, but there's a big difference between that and what he actually does. And I think what you're seeing right now on Capitol Hill, or I guess back in the districts because everyone's gone, uh, is, you know, a lot of Republicans kind of wrestling with that because they also want to be able to control his or uh, harness his his populist message without necessarily necessarily pinning him down or agreeing with any of these specific uh, policy points. And I think what you're seeing from a lot of Democrats, too, is real discomfort here because they actually agree with some of the things that he's doing now, uh, but they can't outright say it. So what you're starting to see is a little bit a new line of messaging from them. They're basically saying he is breaking his promises. We didn't like his promises to begin with, but forget that. And there are a lot of Republicans who are kind of just they don't really know how to deal with this. So they're just trying to keep quiet. I feel like we've kind of passed the point in political history where being labeled a flip-flopper is like the worst thing you can you can call someone now. It seems like uh, it seems like that's that's almost gone stale. But, but one of the big questions that we don't know yet is that is certainly true for Donald Trump and for a lot of people on the presidential scale. Is that going to actually apply in a lot of these House races? Because what a lot of these Republicans who are going to be up in 18 are going to have to deal with is the fact that they agreed with Trump on X, Y, and Z, but then he changed his mind on X, Y, and Z. And so we don't know yet if, you know, we've seen in recent days a lot of uh, Republicans doing these town halls and, and they're constituents are basically saying, so which Trump do you actually agree with here? Well, and we saw this during the campaign. You know, there was a big fear among conservatives that Trump uh, did not necessarily represent conservative views and that he wasn't far right enough. And he appeased them by putting out the list, for instance, of Supreme Court justices that he would uh, choose by picking Mike Pence, uh, you know, the Indiana governor as his vice president who has uh, very socially conservative views. But, you know, Trump's whole campaign and transition was really populated with 
a lot of people from the very far right leaning Heritage Foundation and, you know, all these conservatives who helped support him early on. It'll be really interesting to watch in the next 24 hours sort of what that reaction among uh, that subset of his supporters are, because these are not the positions that they elected him on. And they do not want to see sort of another like, quote unquote, Bush presidency, like an archetype like that play out over the next four years. And that's what these positions are more in line with. Yeah. And I think even more importantly than these groups, we're seeing it in the base. We're seeing it in the grassroots and they are frustrated. I mean, I uh, had like a source network among these super volunteers of Trump who were really running the campaign early on when he didn't have much of a campaign to speak of. And I'm, they're blowing up my phone, just furious over the serious strike, over his, his, uh, you know, vacillation on DACA, the Dream Act, essentially saying that he was going to terminate it immediately. You know, the wall, the building of the wall, what's happened with that? And Mexico going to pay for it? Are we going to pay for it? I mean, these are things that these people who many of them were new to politics. So to your point, Scott, that like flip flopping, yeah, whatever, we're sort of over that. I think some of these people who were sort of brought into the political activism by Donald Trump are not so blase about the flip flop and they are deeply concern. And I think, you know, I don't know necessarily the, the degree to which they'll be important in, in midterm races. Certainly they could have helped if he could have mobilized that, particularly if he's going to blow up the old Republican coalition, he needs to replace it with something. And so it would have been, you know, it would have been these folks and they could have been useful, but like certainly for his own reelection, should he seek it as he has suggested that he will, as he's declared that he will, uh, Having these people turned off could be a major problem. Yeah, but let's also not pretend here that uh, this is the final flip-flop. I mean, during the campaign especially, how many times did we hear the narrative, oh, it's the new Trump, only for that to not be the case? I mean, it's a bit different here because we're dealing with specific policy positions. But the notion that uh, Donald Trump is now locked into these new ones that he has uh, talked about in the last few days is just not how – that's not how any presidency works, especially not his. He is unpredictable. As he often says, he wants to be unpredictable. So if he perceives that his base is starting to leave him over some of these options, there's no reason to believe that he won't flip back. Well, that's a great point, Gabe. And I, when you when you put it like that, it becomes very easy to understand why, say, the House Freedom Caucus was not willing to budge on health care, right? If it's unclear at any given point what Trump's core principle is on an issue like health care or coming up tax reform or any number of other big legislative issues that Republicans want to push, what incentive is there for a legislature, uh, a legislator or a powerful group of legislators like the House Freedom Caucus to move if they think there's a chance Trump might move later? Yeah. And I just feel like also, you know, to Gabe's point, what's it going to look like if the presidency just sort of swings back and forth between these like far right economic nationalist ideas espoused by Steve Bannon and then the more moderate, um, you know, positions on economics or, uh, you know, foreign policy that are espoused by the Gary Cohen, uh, who's the head of the National Economic Council, these things. Is it just going to like every week go back and forth? Um I, I don't know, but I think that'll be something that'll be interesting to watch. And that also makes it tough to sort of build a coalition. You know, these people are getting turned off and Gabe says, oh, you could flip back and, and get them back, but you can't like take the missiles back. You know, uh, there are people who were legitimately uh, enthusiastic about his non-interventionist 
um, tact. And that was one of the things that was untraditional that sort of brought in people, you know, dis, disaffected Democrats, you know, conservative Democrats who, who were tired of our, uh, you know, um, uh, democracy building, uh, you know, from the, from the Bush era that sort of carried over to the Obama era. And so I think some of those people, uh, it may not be so easy to get them back. And I think we're actually starting to see that a little bit on Capitol Hill. If you look at what's what a lot of the talk has been uh, surrounding the Obamacare repeal specifically, if you look at the uh, House Freedom Caucus, I think a lot of them were wary, but they were pretty willing to work with Trump at the beginning because he said from the start, we're going to get rid of Obamacare on day one. Uh, then obviously once they started to work with him a little bit, they didn't like that so much, but now they're kind of on his team again. So there, you know, there's a lot of wariness from some of these folks who are really uh, ideological hardliners in some ways because, as Scott said, they don't know what his principles are. But that is a big part of Trump's base uh, that he can't really afford to, to to lose. And even if he flips back to their position at some point, I think there is a baseline of trust that may be gone now. The one other big thing I'm wondering about this is just how much of this is driven by the fact that he, he doesn't have Hillary Clinton to align himself in mirror image opposition to anymore. You know, he's He's out there on his own. He's the president now. He doesn't have a a uh, specific opponent. He has many enemies, uh, but he doesn't have a specific opponent or idea to contrast himself against. And this, this is a thing that we've discussed uh, many times here on the Nerdcast, this, I, this, this question of like whether his supporters – you know, came to him because of his because of his enemies and because of his like brilliant ability to like spin a message around his enemies, or whether they came to him because of his policy stance. I don't think we ever resolved that. I don't think the polls ever. What you mean we didn't solve that, that one? But uh, but nonetheless, I mean, Trump does continue to you know rail against these enemies who were the sort of the enemies of his base, the media, you know, the Washington establishment, even when it's disingenuous. And that's that is sort of the key question going forward is whether that will be enough. This the idea that he is not politically correct and that he's railing against the media and the political establishment, even if there's no coherent ideology and even if some of the policy positions that he's taken or initiatives that he's pushed actually line up with those of the Washington establishment and the folks who he claims to be uh, sort of adversarial towards. And, and and I think that will be really potentially determinative of his poll numbers and his, his uh, re-election prospects. That's a great point, Ken, and a good place to kind of sit back and take stock a little bit. These segments are flowing together really nicely this week. Our last data point, 100, the 100-day mark of Trump's presidency is closing in on us. Traditionally, that's a deadline, an artificial one to be sure, but a deadline to take stock of administration goals and how far uh, a new administration has come toward achieving them. However, it's starting to look more like this could be a deadline for a reset. And Nancy, what's the White House grappling with right now ahead of the 100-day mark in terms of personnel, in terms of directing these policies and some of these shifts that we've been talking about? Yeah, well, our colleague Shane Goldmacher had a great piece earlier this week just about how stressed out the White House is over this 100-day mark. And, you know, as you said, it's totally a superficial mark. It's something that, uh, you know, journalists and the media will write about as a, a hallmark of or a harbinger of sort of how the rest of the first year is going to go. But to be fair, Trump himself also uh, made a lot of promises about things that he would do in the first 100 days, and he hasn't achieved a lot of those things. And so internally, the White House is stressed out and trying to think about how to rebrand these accomplishments and put them in these different buckets and talk about prosperity and what he's done on foreign policy. But meanwhile, uh, 
you know, there's been a lot of problems internally just in terms of getting Trump's legislative agenda going. Uh, you know, I wrote a story earlier this week with two of my colleagues that also just talked about filling the ranks of the federal government and how that was hugely problematic. Trump himself has to sign off on every single hire at a federal agency. We're talking about thousands of thousands of slots. And to, to be clear, the, when you say Trump has to sign off, this is because Trump wants to. This is not something presidents typically do. Is oh, it? no, no. Presidents typically do not sign off on like lower level slots at agencies. That's that's really unprecedented. Um, so the fact that, you know, Trump has this binder that he gets once a week and goes through all the names of the potential hires. Um, and we're not talking about cabinet secretaries or, you know, we're talking about some Senate confirmed positions, but even down to lower level, goes through and has to pick, uh, sign off on these folks. That just means that it's a hugely time-consuming thing and another thing that's slowing him down. That that just reminds me, I mean, we were thinking the other day about uh, the fact that Terry Branstad is still the governor of Iowa right now, is where there was this big hullabaloo when, the, you know, the longest serving governor ever, I think, right, uh, was, you know, he was finally going to ride off into the sunset to this ambassadorial appointment. And but he's still there. <laughs> There's been very slow movement on that and a lot of other things. Well, and also just Trump during the campaign said in the first 100 days, for instance, you know, he would repeal Obamacare. Uh, you know, he was going to cancel all these executive actions uh that Obama did. He was going to build a wall. He was going to implement extreme vetting. He was going to pull out of NAFTA, uh, renegotiate it, uh, withdraw from the TPP. And he's done very, very few of these things. He's done uh, quite a bit by executive action. But when, yeah. once you need to get into the legislative arena, that's where things have really bogged down, right? Right. Well, I mean, and the highest profile executive action, the, the travel restrictions are are on ice. So it's a, he, he hasn't done. I mean, the, the, even the within his purview, acting, you know, the, the things in which he has the ability to act unilaterally, he has not uh, sort of he has not made a ton of progress. And, and Nancy's story on the um, on the unfilled appointments is, is really case in point. I mean, that's how you change the government is not necessarily like passing, you know, seminal signature legislative, uh, you know, changes, uh, though those are obviously key as well. But the way that you can really make an impact is by putting your people in and filling up these agencies with your people and, uh, you know, writing rules through through the agencies. And, and he's he's struggled on that front. And that's the systemic way in which the personnel has been a problem. Then there's also the people who he has appointed who, who have uh, been at each other's throats increasingly. And there's a real like factionalism within the White House that is emblematic of the, the sort of types of uh, cultures that Trump has had, uh, you know, previously in his campaign, in his business. I mean, it, the, the, I've made this point before, but it very much looks like The Apprentice, where people are pitted against each other, uh, and there's this battle for supremacy, and the ones who lose get fired, and the ones who survive survive until there's the next battle, and then they ultimately uh, find themselves ensnared in, in a difficult sort of, uh, you know, apprentice-esque uh, battle for survival. So some of the figures that we're talking about now, Steve Bannon, the, the chief White House strategist who was seen as really so uh, influential in the in the stretch run of the campaign, his stock is down to the point where Donald Trump gave an interview to the New York Post this week and said he's just a strategist. He wasn't even on my campaign for that long. And a lot of people in the White House are reading into that and what it means and whether he could be on the way out. 
ascendant, as we've discussed, are Jared Kushner and his sort of band of New York moderates, including uh, economic advisor Gary Cohn, Dina Powell, who's on the NSC but is going to be removed from the NSC to take a position as ambassador to Singapore. And there's a there's another faction that's sort of developing with the uh, budget director. Uh, so, you know, we have uh, even more sort of intrigue here to be following. Yeah, and not to put too fine a point on the uh, idea of the, you know, reality show presidency, but I think one thing that's happening now that we've literally never seen before is the degree to which all this is playing out in the public eye. You know, Steve Bannon is really a celebrity. Uh, so is, you know, Ryan Priebus. These are not people who are who've run for public office. These are people who are basically behind the scenes operatives. But as you say, Trump himself is, uh, you know, doing these pretty high profile interviews where he's openly talking about who's up and who's down. And this is changing so quickly uh, because in some ways it's, you know, it's entertaining for people to watch. I remember talking to, to folks over the weekend or at the beginning of the weekend who are openly speculating how long uh, you know, Ryan's previous had before he was going to be ousted. But now all of a sudden he's ascendant. It's been like four days. It's entertaining, I suppose. But you know, it can, no one could even begin to imagine Barack Obama talking this way about David Axelrod or David Pluff. I mean, this is just a new way of thinking about these characters. Nancy, tell us a little bit more about some of these new folks who, as, as Gabe said, the upper echelons of Trump's administration and his campaign kind of became names unto themselves in an unusual way, partly thanks to places like Saturday Night Live and, and others. But still, they're they're pretty well known at this point. But who who are some of the newer names that we might not know as well who are who are gaining stature? Tell us a little bit about where they came from. Well, I think the the person that's really ascendant this week who has like won the week, if we want to put it like that, would be Gary Cohen, who is the head of the National Economic Council. And, you know, he came from Goldman Sachs. He's a New York banker. He's very close to Jared Kushner and Ivanka. Um, he's very close to Dina Powell. And, you know, he has kind of managed to, uh, you know, and also Trump sees him as a peer, which is quite key. Um, you know, Trump sees him as someone who also made a lot of money, who's a New York business person, who under that way of thinking. And basically, Gary Cohen and that wing have been at the throats of Bannon and the economic nationalist wing. And, you know, Gary Cohen really seems to be winning out. But I feel like what's quite key here is that Gary Cohen is allied with Jared Kushner. And I think that what we've seen with a lot of the palace intrigue stories is that the family always wins in the end. And that was definitely true in the transition. You know, Jared Kushner did not like Governor Chris Christie, and he eventually was ousted from the transition. So the takeaway is, you know, family first. Just like the Bluth family, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was true on the campaign where, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's wrong to think of like Jared Kushner as one of the factions and more, it's better to think of him as like the arbiter of the fight. He's like the referee. He gets to decide who wins. So during the campaign, when Corey Lewandowski and Paul Manafort were at each other's throats, that it was Kushner who made the call. Hey, Lewandowski's out. He actually was present and, and we understand executed the firing. Uh, and then when Paul Manafort, uh, sort of was becoming a liability and they had already brought in Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway and Dave Bossy, uh, Kushner, you know, was, was influent, was pivotal in making the decision. Hey, time to get rid of. Paul Manafort. And so that's why it's it's really dumb from a survival standpoint to pick a fight with Jared Kushner, as Steve Bannon, we understand, has done, referring disparagingly to him as a cuck, which is an alt-right insult, uh, and as a, a, a liberal Democrat, 
uh, behind his back, well, that stuff gets back to Jared Kusher or leaks out in the press and he doesn't like it. And then you're going to be in for some trouble. Well, and I just think just to put a point on it, I, I mean, I think these palace intrigue stories are fun and interesting to read, but I think that they really actually matter in the day to day because because Trump is so ideologically flexible, as we've been talking about, whoever is dominant in the West Wing and has his ear, that policy position is going to win out. And Gary Cohen is ascendant now. He has more moderate policy views. And we see Trump veering towards that direction now. And also because Trump is such a voracious consumer of media that he reads these palace intrigue stories and it kind of begets more coverage. That's why he's commenting on them because he's reading them. And so he becomes part of it and it, and it sort of takes on a life of its own. That's a great point. Now, we're talking about the 100-day mark and the accomplishments and how the the shifting sands of the personnel wars in the White House are affecting those. But we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the single biggest accomplishment, like by a long shot. It's appointing Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court and getting him confirmed, right, Gabe? I mean, that, that that's an accomplishment. Accomplishment that is going to—that's that, a forty-year accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. Not only is it an extremely substantive accomplishment that actually did change the uh, political and policy dynamic on in Washington, you know, and in the states for for a few days at least. It's something that point, that Trump will be able to point to uh, for the rest of his presidency, and certainly has already started saying, "I'm keeping my promises." And this was actually. It sort of understated how important this was for a lot of Republicans who did end up supporting Trump and who are still by his side right now because what a lot of them said was basically, listen, we may not like the guy, but he's going to be appointing Republican or conservative Supreme Court justices who you know will shape the the shape of American policy for decades to come. Neil Gorsuch is a young guy and uh, the fight over him was not really in whether or not he was qualified. There's no doubt about that. So he is likely to be extremely – influential for a very long time. And that's one of the reasons that Trump has been out there saying now, I am keeping my promises because he knows there's a meme out there that he's not. And he knows the 100 days is coming soon. So you can expect from start to finish, Neil Gorsuch's name will be, uh, you know, it'll be thrown out a lot over the next few days. Nancy, last word. Yeah, well, I just think the interesting thing about Gorsuch is that it has been the bright spot and a tremendous success. It's also one that Trump had very, very little to do with. <laughs> I mean, he completely outsourced that decision to Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalist Society and Don McGahn, who is the White House counsel, the White House's top lawyer. They really ran that. They had a bunch of support from outside groups. Um, you know, Don McGahn ran the initial interview process. And so obviously Trump made the final call, but just the whole process of getting Gorsuch confirmed and even picked, Trump had very little to do with. And it's interesting to me that that is his biggest success. That's as good a place as any to end. Nancy, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Gabe, thanks for being here. Anytime. And Ken, thank you. Fun time as always. And of course, thank you as always to our listeners. Remember, if you have questions, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. If you have time, please write a written review of us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, uh, in addition to subscribing and rating us. And, of course, a big thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico web producer, Zach Montalaro. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you again next week.